A Spotify playlist comprised of the songs featured on this episode can be found on the episode page for this podcast at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8 Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to The World is Wrong Podcast. Here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about you. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. Uh, yeah, welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films that the world is wrong about. I'm your host, Andras Jones, and... I'm Brian Connolly, the other host. We're co-hosts of this show. And uh, we're doing our uh, one of our Hanukkah episodes, right? Yeah. Happy Hanukkah, everybody. Happy Hanukkah, everybody. Even those of you who don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about this film, One Trick Pony, that I love. And... Uh, and I guess, uh, should we say anything about it before we intro it? Is there anything you want to say before we, we dive into my recap and the clips and, and all that? No, because once I start, I'm not going to stop because I'm really excited. I've been converted. I've been converted during Hanukkah towards this movie, <laughs> One Trick Pony. Wonderful, so. wonderful. <laughs> it requires, you, you, don't, you, you don't have to give anything up to, to be converted <laughs> to this film. <laughs> literally no skin in the game so uh yeah let's just dive into it joan 11 whose brilliant anthem soft parachutes stands as an enduring monument of this period
What's a good word? It's a nice set you did tonight. Very music and spectacle. Hey, Cal Van Damme. What's a good word with you? Well, you're the bright boy. I figured you'd know. Stay out of pidges. What? Stay out of pidges. Means a, a large rump, a fat ass. Why is that the good word? Well, it's like, see, if, what if I was, if I was to say to you, Cal, do you have a very fatty ass? You could be offended. But if I say, hey, good evening, Cal. You sure look Seattle Pidges. Then you don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, do you? Hope you don't have any plans for getting your records played on any radio really? station. No. no. Huh? Well, you shouldn't, because you won't get any. Nice talking to you, Schweitzer. Real little prick, don't you think? Yeah, I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell. Has any other major pop star ever made a film where they played the loser version of themselves? Paul Simon writes and stars in One Trick Pony, a film about Jonah Levin, who is the kind of songwriter Paul Simon might have been had he never met Garfunkel, or if The Graduate, which made Simon and Garfunkel into international superstars, had never happened. He might have been a one-hit wonder. Or... He's a one-trick pony One trick is all that horse can do He does one trick only It's the principal source of his revenue And when he steps into the spotlight You can feel the heat of his heart come rising through Speaking personally, as someone who has toured with an independent band and struggled with passive-aggressive producers and had to face the reality that playing music like Paul Simon is more likely to lead to a life like Jonah 11's, I can tell you that this film is as true to the experience of being a touring singer-songwriter as any I've ever seen. We'll talk at length about it, I'm sure, and I'll drop a bunch of music into this episode, but I want to go on record as saying how much I love this album, probably more than any other of Simon's solo releases. The rhythm section of Steve Gadd and Tony Levin is for the ages, and Eric Gale and Richard T., who performed together with Gadd and the band Stuff from 1976 through the mid-80s, 
definitely bring their sound to the record and go toe-to-toe as actors with all the rock stars and great character actors in this film. I think of One Trick Pony as Paul Simon's In the Wee Small Hours, and there is something Sinatra-esque to the Joan Eleven character, an uncompromising artist, out of step with his time, working at the top of his game while the audience and the industry look the other way. Robert M. Young, another director with a background in documentaries like Michael Apted from our Thunderheart incident at Oglala episode, brings a documentarian's eye to the on-the-road portions of the film with Jonah and his band in the van, in scungy green rooms, in the studio, and on stage as they perform songs from the One Trick Pony album in small clubs to middling applause opening for hipper bands of the era like the B-52s. Meanwhile, the scenes where Jonah navigates the music business side of his life are funny and painful in a sophisticated spinal tap kind of way, thanks to wicked performances from Rip Torn, Alan Garfield, Joan Hackett, and, beautifully, Lou Reed. These are the cinematic highlights that you just have to see, even if you don't love Paul Simon as much as we do. The other third of the movie involves Jonah's estranged wife, played by Blair Brown, and their young son with whom Simon has a funny, sweet courtship of Eddie's father vibe that's reminiscent of the father-son scenes from Kramer vs. Kramer. It's got that tail end of the 70s feeling that you can just soak in, and it creates a home you can see Jonah wanting to come back to. One of the things that inspires me about Paul Simon as a singer, he never seems to raise his voice. This draws us in. And Paul Simon acts just like he sings. He brings an understated charisma to the role that perfectly complements the music from the One Trick Pony album. And just like casting an athlete like Pele in a soccer movie or Bruce Lee in a martial arts film, the moments when Simon can hold a scene just sitting and noodling with his guitar in a dark room or perform at a cheesy tribute show and silence the room with a song like Soft Parachutes the authenticity of his talent binds the whole film together. Considering how many films feature great actors giving embarrassing performances as musicians, any quibbles about Simon's limited acting range should be balanced with an appreciation of his authenticity as a singer with a guitar. Maybe he can only play one role, Joan Eleven, but he's the only guy who could play Joan Eleven. Can you imagine another actor trying to play this role? No. It all hangs on the fact that even if you sound like Paul Simon, if the breaks don't go your way and you can't play the game, you could end up just like Joan Eleven. It's been a long, long day. <laughs> so... Why is the world wrong about this movie? Well, I don't know why, but I can tell you how. How is the world <laughs> wrong about this movie? Well, it's it's seen as a failure. Like, if you read about it, it's considered a commercial failure, even though it had two hit songs on it, Late in the Evening and One Trick Pony. And the reviews of it really, they, they talk about how Simon isn't a very good actor, and I think he's great in this role. 
I, yeah. I, I think he's real. I can't take my eye, eyes off him. I just he doesn't he doesn't make the mistake that a lot of novice actors do, which is acting too much. Yeah. Uh, and so so that's that's one of the ways. And then I guess it's tough because in listening to Paul Simon talk about his career, it feels like he's wrong about his own record. Like he doesn't know how great this record is or how great this film is. Maybe because he read the reviews, maybe because, you know, as an artist, it's hard to see yourself. Maybe because they didn't make the same kind of impact that his bigger hits, like still crazy after all these years or Graceland, which are kind of the two big hit albums that are on either side of this with, uh, Mm -hmm. Hearts and Bones and after One Trick Pony as uh, sort of being in that period that people consider to be sort of his weak period. But I think those two records are fantastic. And so it's it's tough because I feel like I'm sw- as a fan of this film, I'm swimming upstream against the artist as a greater champion of the, the work than the artist is. Which, again, I understand. <laughs> I, I know that there are things that I've put out that I am mostly aware of what's wrong with them and other people are you know focused on what's right about them so I, I get it but uh, but that, that doesn't change my opinion I love the record I love this film and I gotta say I checked it out Roger Ebert gave it a great review he said it was one How of many the, stars I think it was like three and a half or four stars. It, hey, that's pretty good. He said it was one of the best in a, in a weak year, 1980. It was one of the best films of the year. Wow. There you go. So we, we gave <laughs> Roger Ebert some crap on the Mad Dog Time episode, <laughs> and he was wrong about that. But he was one of the rare folks who I feel like really appreciated this film and was able to write about it. It felt like even some of the appreciative reviews of this film sort of damned it with faint praise. You know, they... they. It's weird, because... Well, I guess we can get into talking about it now. Let's just talk about the film. Uh, the, yeah, so <laughs> that's how the film... That's how the world is is wrong about uh, about One Trick Pony. So, so yeah. I was so excited to hear that you loved it as much oh, as I yeah. did. So tell, it, tell me about your so, experience, Brian. So, like, I, I grew up in a Paul Simon loving family like i remember like finding my parents simon and garfunkel album and like listening to that endlessly uh, before i knew what even the movie the graduate was or anything like i just that was my window then i found the movie the graduate and fell in love even more with simon and garfunkel then my dad excitedly brought home graceland on vinyl when it did like the day it came out and he listened to it literally every weekend for maybe two years so that's that album is just like burnt into my brain um, and yet, despite that, and even uh, recently, my wife said that we are a Paul Simon family as well, which is good to know. Like, I don't want to be in any other kind of family. Uh, but I'd never seen this movie. I never, I never heard anything good about it. Like, I knew of its existence, but from the few that had seen it that I knew, they were like very dismissive of it, or even downright like. That movie's boring. That movie sucks. They, they, why, why, we, what a waste of time. Don't watch that movie. Like, what a misfire. And, man, are they wrong. Like, the, now, I, I will go as far as to say this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. Yeah. Like, 
I really like I really love this movie a lot. Like it just taps into sort of like like you said, like it has that leftover kind of seventies movie feel to it. I think because it's directed by a, a guy who's doing documentaries, it has that kind of like intimacy that movies start to lose in the 80s unless you get into some good indie stuff. And Paul Simon's a revelation in this movie. Like, he is so good. And it's it's depressing that he wasn't in more movies because he's so good. Like, you just, you're just drawn into him in this movie and you're just like, you can't take your eyes off of him. Yeah. It's 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 like I I love it. Like I want everybody to see this movie. So let's start there. So Paul Simon there's a history of rock stars being in movies. Elvis Presley, The Beatles, Prince, on and on. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is pretty unique in terms yeah. of movies like that yeah can you think of any movies where a rock star has done this where they've basically played themselves but in a world where nobody is lining up to see them (laughs) when they play music the audience doesn't erupt in crazy applause you kind of get the sense that some people get it but most people don't it's mostly yeah. an embarrassing experience. I've just, I've, ne- that is the experience of, and I know a lot of musicians who are songwriters who are far more successful than me, maybe closer to where Jonah Levin is in this. You know, he had a hit, mm-hmm. he's got a label, he gets, yeah. he gets gigs, but that their experience is that is, is your opening for a, a unknown band that's hipper than you, and people are that you're there <laughs> to sort of draw people to come see whatever version of the B-52s there is. Uh, I, I I just don't... I feel like it's such a... It's it's very on brand, I think, for Paul Simon. And I think it's weird yeah. that people call this an ego trip. Because I feel it's like the it's opposite. the opposite. It's the opposite. <laughs> it's like... It's rare, like, rare and maybe even, like, unheard of to have a rock star. And Paul Simon's a rock star, sure. Like, his music's not crazy arena rock, but he is. He fills, to have a he rock fills star, stadiums. He, at the time, he, he, fills was, stadiums. he was big enough to uh, fill Central Park. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's it's rare to have a musician make a movie so introspective because, like, like you said, it's like when... Even when they're trying to play, like, da- like t- real people, like Prince and Purple Rain or Elvis and anything... They still have with them this big rock star aura, you know, like it's you can't shake it. And in this movie, Paul Simon is totally believable as this kind of guy struggling to succeed as a, as a, as a singer songwriter. Like you're not there's not a point where you're just like, this is ludicrous. This is, this is I don't buy it. But you instantly buy it. So you're just like and what that was the great surprise of the movie for me. The first time I watched it was like I didn't expect that because I really thought it was going to be about. Paul Simon kind of being the Paul Simon I know, where he's like filling the parks and he's selling records and he's a pop, very popular guy. But instead, like you said, the, the scene of him opening for the B-52s, people aren't so into it. People are really into the B-52s. And then him and his band backstage are just kind of shrugging, being like, well, do you, know, you, do you want to keep doing this? <laughs> like it's, it, and it works. It works 100%. And I can't even think, like, I cannot think of another movie where a musician has pulled that off and I'm trying to think of another musician who could have pulled it off. Like maybe, 
maybe if Bruce Springsteen ever made a movie, maybe he could figure out a way to act in the blue collar world he sings about, you know, perhaps, maybe. But yeah. I don't know, even that, I think he would be hard for him to shake that kind of, he's the boss, you know, like, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I guess maybe like Bob Dylan in like Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, he's sort of like this little mumbly weirdo. In that, and he doesn't really have a rock star thing going on. But again, in that movie, he's not playing a musician. Like he's not playing like a version of Bob Dylan, like how this is a weird alternate reality version of Paul Simon. Yeah. Well, you we mentioned it. One of the first things that struck me when I first watched this film, and I saw this film, so I I got this record when it came out in 1980. so weird to be like a seventh grader getting into <laughs> this middle-aged i was just, i was i was just like between john lennon's double fantasy and pete townsend's all the best cowboys have chinese eyes and paul simon's one trick pony i was just a little middle-aged man <laughs> <laughs> So I totally, yeah. But point is, I didn't see this film until like 2003, 2004, after I'd been touring and playing. It's kind of funny because like this record inspired me to be a songwriter in so many ways. And not seeing the movie, I feel kind of like I was like someone who just saw the book Moby Dick and thought, I'm going to call myself Ahab because Ahab sounds like a <laughs> badass who's just got a big dick and beats up on whales. And then and then you live a life and you lose your leg and all this bad stuff happens to you trying to be like Ahab. And then he's like, maybe I should read the book. You're like, wait a second. <laughs> this is not at all what I thought it was. Maybe I shouldn't have devoted my life to this. Well, uh, I mean, this is definitely a movie for grown-ups like this is not a movie i don't think anyone under the age of 40 would get anything out of this movie maybe i don't know well, well i guess we'll see we'll have to hear what, what our listeners think but uh i don't know if we have any listeners under 40 i hope uh but one of the things so so you're watching this movie and all of a sudden there's the b-52s in 1980 after this great performance by paul simon and his band and it's sort of like whoa this film is not is like a it's like a historical document. Like, yeah, this is this is very hip. It could have been any band, but you know the B52s went on to be huge, and Paul Simon was hip enough to know that. I guess and hip enough to know it, and humble enough to make them the cool band compared to his, even though his <laughs> band was the good band, and. <laughs> so let's talk about his band in this film because uh, capture. I don't yeah, know. Are, are you familiar with the legend of Steve Gadd? No, I, I don't. I know these people. So Steve Gadd, he's the drummer. He played the drum part on Fifty Ways to Leave Your Lover. 
It's a very sort of it, it's a hook of a of a part. played the drum part on uh, Ricky Lee Jones's Chucky's in Love, another sort of signature drum part. In the 80s and 90s, it was sort of like he was the example of the greatest drummer in the world so the joke would be how many drummers does it take to screw in a light bulb it just takes one but all the rest of them stand around and say steve gadd could have done it better and (laughs) so the fact that you're capturing steve gadd in this moment at the peak of his power in these concert scenes is Similar to the B-52s, just you're so glad to have it as a document. The bass player, Tony Levin, are you familiar with him? No. So he he's most famous probably for playing with Peter Gabriel on all of his solo stuff and also with joining King Crimson right after this film. So again, he is just sort of a bass player's bass player. So you got this rhythm section of two superstars and lots of concert footage with them playing in these small clubs with Paul Simon. And again, it's just like this film is populated with so much goodness and it's it's, so it's it makes you glad that it has this documentary filmmaker capturing it because Mm -hmm. these aren't just like session musicians these are the like the world's greatest session musicians some people say jesus that's the ace in the hole I never met the man, so I don't really know. Maybe some Christmas if I'm sick and lonely, will look up my number, call me on the phone, and I'll say, Hey, boy, where you been so long? Don't you know me? I'm your ace in the hole. And then I only figured this out in my research for this, but Steve Gadd and Eric Gale and Richard T, the the drummer, the guitarist, and the keyboard player, all had a band called Stuff that started in 1976 after Steve Gadd had played with Paul Simon on the Still Crazy After All These Years record. And I guess that was when he was starting to get into his own, like come into his own as maybe like, someone who people were noticing. He'd been playing with a lot of jazz guys before, but I feel like that was his first sort of big pop appearance. And 
if you listen to recordings of the band's stuff, you can definitely hear that Paul Simon was a fan and allowed them to bring their sound to the to the One Trick Pony tracks. And they're they're amazing, and they're, the scenes with them all just driving in the van and. Like that that game they play the dead rock stars game is that is that's the exactly the kind of thing you do in a band when you have miles to go. Uh, um, King Curtis. Uh, Donny Hathaway. Otis Redding, the greatest. Doctor Bay was just becoming a hit when his plane went down. Sam Cooke. Johnny, you want to play some rock and roll dance? Yeah, I'll play. I still don't think he technically qualifies, but let's not quibble. Anyway, now that you mention it, Tim Harden. He's not dead. You're out. Bullshit, I'm out. He OD'd. He did not OD. Crochy? Take his bread. Crochy's good. We should have, like, two separate categories for the ODs and for the plane crashes. No, 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 no. We're playing for money now. Let's just get the names together. Okay, uh, Mama Cass, Cass Elliott. Richie Valens. Man McCoy. Leonard Skinner. You only get one one point. One. <laughs> you get one one point. Leonard Skinner, the '50s rock and roll rock and roll guy. Bebop Balula. Gene Vincent. A guy from Chicago. Um, blew his brains out. Uh, Terry Terry something or other. Um, there must be some English guys who died. You just don't pay attention that much. Um, English English dead people. English dead. Oh, uh, Eddie Cochran. He's not English. He died in England. Who's it? Eddie Cochran? Yeah. Summertime Blues. All right. The um, first drummer with the average white band, Robbie. Right. I don't know his last name. Robbie Odia Cheers, friend's house. I'm running out of names. Right. Odia Cheers, friend's house was his last name? No, that's where he. <laughs> See my baby. Frankie Lyman. Uh, let me see. Janis Joplin. Joplin's good. Elvis. Yeah, he's dead. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a band on tour done so authentically. Like I've been on, I, I've not played a band, but I've been like a roadie for bands and have traveled across the country with them. And it just feels, it ranks so true in this movie. It's not this constant party, drug sex party that other movies always like to show it as. Like it really is just like, you're with these dudes in a van for 15 hours as you're driving down the rainy freeway in Oklahoma. And... And you're just bullshitting about whatever, and you're kind of sleepy, and like, and it's so, it's done so well in this movie. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I think, as I said in my recap, the satirical parts of the film with Rip Torn and Lou Reed and the rest, that that's, those are the high points, but my favorite stuff is the stuff with the band, whether it's on stage or in the van or backstage or in the studio, just they really got their dynamics right. They all seem like they all seem like really nice guys too. Like everyone just seems so authentically kind. I don't know if that's just when you're around Paul Simon, you're all going to be a little more mellow and <laughs> but like none, none of them are throwing any diva fits or yelling at each other. It's like very like everyone just seems really mellow and kind in this band. It does also demonstrate the parts where there are riffs in uh, rifts in the band and the way that those scenes happened again were very very believable there's a scene where they pull up to a club that is closed and forgot to tell them that they that the club was closed so the band just shows up and i can tell you that that scene after where paul simon's sort of saying well we didn't make any money for this so and the band's like well we got to get paid you can't not make money i can't you know and it's not Paul Simon's fault, but it's also not the band's fault that they are out on the road not making money. And that's the kind that's who boy, the fact that Paul Simon, who's been a successful musician, who's been basically rich and been able to pay his band for most of his you know adult life. The fact that he was that he recognized and got that dynamic was very impressive to me. You know, a lot of yeah. times, that's it is like a lot of times when people are very like who have been successful their whole lives as musicians, I just feel like they don't even know what it's like to be this kind of a musician. And yeah. I'm, we can get into it a little bit, but I, I, I kind of wonder who Paul Simon thinks Joan Eleven is like. Like, <laughs> there's a scene at the beginning of the movie where. It's great. We're uh, Daniel Stern in one of the great cameos in this film. A very young Daniel Stern shows up as a Hare Krishna at the airport, trying to get the band to get all Hare Krishna up. And when he's talking with Paul Simon, is that if you want to purify your existence, get into your spiritual self. Check it out. Okay. Okay. Hare Krishna. Okay, okay, Harry Chapin. <laughs> and I was wondering, I was just thinking about like other song where like Harry Chapin, maybe, maybe he's like an analog for a Joan Eleven type, like a guy who's really known for that one song. Smile never did it said I'm gonna be like him Yeah, you know I'm gonna be like him But he never really had other hits And you could see him having the kind of Record company woes That Paul Simon Or Joan Eleven mm-hmm. has in this film mm-hmm. Continuing I want to just focus on some of the On the musicians and some of the band stuff in this film And we can then shift to another part of the film Yeah but another big music scene in this film is a tribute to the 60s. So in this film, the idea is that Paul Simon or Joan Eleven had one hit 
that was an anti-war hit in the 60s called Soft Parachutes. And maybe we should talk about that song a little bit because the fact that Paul Simon can just toss that off as a throwaway, like that's not on any of his records. That didn't even get released on this on the album for this really on the One Trick Pony huh. album. And it's just such a perfect sort of Simon and Garfunkel-y type old friends kind of song. And just the fact that Paul Simon can toss that one off and then have it be as good as it is and (laughs) show-stopping as it is, is one of those things that's like, I don't know any other songwriter who could do this, and I don't know any other songwriter who would do this and then just bury that song as if it never existed. Yeah. Because if that was the only song he had ever written, that would be a song people would still be talking about. And this is a throwaway. This is like the In the Couch Cushions song for Paul Simon. You know, like... (laughs) So, at this uh, tribute to the 60s show, it's not just Joan Eleven who's on the bill. There's also Sam and Dave and The Love and Spoonful. And I thought there were some... Clever. Well, with the Sam and Dave thing, they they showed in just a couple of shots. You know, the the legend about Sam and Dave is that they would perform they performed together for years, but they refused to talk to each other. Yeah, they really didn't like each other. And in a very few shots, without actually saying it, you can kind of see that dynamic shown on film. Did you pick up on that? No, I didn't. Like, they finish the song, and you can just kind of see, they instead of coming together, they turn away from each other. And maybe it's the kind of thing, if you know that legend, and then you see it, and you're like, oh, well, that was that was an economical expression of that dynamic. Um, and then, did you feel like they went out, the film went out of its way to kind of be mean to Love and Spoonful? To, to Love I and did, Spoonful? I did. Like, because aren't, aren't they playing, like, don't they play, like, I Believe in Magic or something? Yeah. Like Like a hit, but not their best song, because like they made a lot of good songs. Um, but yeah, it just kind of feels like it was a way to hammer in sort of this idea of like, here's this hokey reunion throwback to the 60s that this brilliant artist has been thrown into, you know, like, and I feel like having the Love and Spoonful be a part of it. But who knows, maybe this was an actual event that Paul Simon just signed up to do, and no. these were the people that would play that kind <laughs> no. of event, you know, no. like, and film, and you film this movie scene there in it, you know, no. Tiny Tim's also in this. Yeah, part, Tiny you know? Tim's there. I feel like I, I, I feel like it's a, a little bit of a setup, but like I think Paul Simon invited Sam and Dave and the Love and Spoonful and Tiny Tim to be on this, and it's not that Love and the Love and Spoonful's performance is bad, but they really. He's playing like John Sebastian plays a zither and they really focus in on that. The way they shoot, like the difference between the way they shoot the Love and Spoonful's performance, all sort of looking up and like just the angles are unflattering. And it's (laughs) it's kind of the way you set up a villain in a movie so that the hero can come (laughs) and knock him down. But it just it. I love Paul Simon, but I also he can be. He can be a bit of a dick sometimes, and in this case, (laughs) 
and his character Joan Eleven can as well, which I is kind of, I like that there's that element in it. But I felt like that was the one part of the film that I felt was a little bit unfair. Uh, maybe it's because I was part of a Love and Spoonful tribute this last year that I am. I'm now feeling, I feel a little bit more affinity for The Love and Spoonful (laughs) than I felt when I initially watched this film. When I initially watched it, I thought, oh, that's cheesy. And here comes Paul Simon playing soft parachutes. He's so much better. But now I watch the movie and I'm like, oh, movie. That's not fair. (laughs) I I do like in this scene, though, that when Paul Simon comes out to sing his protest song, he enters on a giant spinning gold record. Yeah. Which is not what you would expect (laughs) for this beautiful protest song. Enter on a (laughs) floor of gold. (laughs) Yeah, but I love, love, love that song. So, yeah, so that we have... Three distinct, I feel like there's three distinct parts of this film. There's the touring stuff, there's the music business stuff, and then there's Paul Simon or Jonah Levin's family stuff where basically he's trying to decide, should he continue playing music or should he stay home and raise his son and get a job and be a good father and, you know, uh, I don't know, provider for his family. And uh, so is there one, do you want to dig into one of those sections? Sure. Yeah. Which one? What's your favorite? What, what, what do you, which, which part do you want to talk? Let's, Hey, let's, let's save the music business stuff for last because that's going to be the most fun and we want to keep (laughs) listeners on this. So maybe let's talk about the father son stuff and the, the family stuff. I thought those scenes were really the way Paul Simon brought a lot of humor to it sort of, it made those scenes very sweet, but it also highlighted his immaturity that mm-hmm. Blair Brown was sort of having to deal with, but also was charmed by. Were there any standout elements of that? Uh, I just I just really like these scenes because, like you said, they kind of feel like Kramer versus Kramer. They also kind of remind me of like some really good like Hazavetti stuff. Like this stuff feels like really good human drama like it feels genuine like it's not heightened human drama like even when they have like there's a scene where they're kind of having a fight but it's the sort of fight that seems more believable and it's definitely believable in the way that paul simon would fight where he's angry but he's not like screaming and yelling and breaking things like you'd see it's not like a scene from raging bull or something like that you know like it's it's more like these aren't violent people these are just People arguing, they can't get, they don't get along with each other. And it's felt so real, like the way they fight with each other, like is more of a believable way that I think most parents would fight with each other, not a movie way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And there's a part when like they're fighting and then it wakes the kid up and the kid comes in and like, what's going on? And then they both kind of like turn into nice parents of like, okay, we are fighting. Even our mellow fighting woke the kid up, you know? And I just really liked that. I thought that was just a good... There's just a nice touch, just to have it not be so ludicrous the way that they don't get along. It really is just as simple as, like, he's just sort of a little immature and so, or, or just kind of really lost in his art, and she wanted someone more responsible who was home all the time and not touring, which is a common problem with uh, people in the entertainment business, you know? Uh, but done in a very believable, you know, like, down-to-earth way. I mean, it's funny because 
we're supposed to believe well Blair Brown definitely sees the fact that he's continuing to tour and play this music as being a sign of immaturity and it's something that the I think the film believes because Paul Simon the Joan 11 character says that about himself but at the same time like in that scene I'm thinking about that scene so when the kid comes out and hears them fighting and he's and he's like, okay. And his mom says the Blair Brown's like, okay, well, we'll put you to sleep. And he's like, I want daddy to put me to sleep. And Paul Simon is like, well, we'll both put you to sleep. Like there, it's not that he's immature. It's that this thing, this songwriting thing just isn't working for him. He is very mature about all of it. And He's keeping his sort of playful, childish, childlike self alive through playing music. Mm-hmm. And and so it's just, I feel like that's one of the things, maybe it's just the person, maybe that's just how I personalized it, is watching it and you're like, you're rooting for him to play, keep playing this music because he's Paul Simon and these songs are great and this band is great and you shouldn't quit. You got like you got to find a way to make this work, Jonah, because well, look, think of all like we're not going to get Graceland if you, if you quit. <laughs> we're not going to get Rhythm of the Saints. We're, there's not going to be like we need you. So it's 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 such an odd thing that the film is doing because the film ultimately spoiler alerts. Uh, you you can find this film. It's available on Amazon Prime. So I hope you checked it out. But uh, I, the film is definitely in favor of him quitting and being a father. But I, as a viewer, am not. I think the the the, the film is wrong. About <laughs> I wonder if like if it was about someone if it was if this movie is written and starring a songwriter who wasn't any good. <laughs> then you'd want them to quit. <laughs> like, yeah. that would be an interesting remake. You make one trick pony with just some has been, one hit wonder. I won't name any names, but like, just somebody who just, it was never good, and maybe they were just lucky once. And then they're touring with their crappy band, and they're not very good at it. And of course, they're not going to make a hit because their songs are terrible and just out of touch. And like, then you would definitely, like, if you did this movie verbatim, but just change the singer songwriter. Then you would definitely be like on the wife's side and be like, "Yeah, you need to be there for your son. Like, quit this dumb sorghum. You're terrible at it. Like, just get on with it. Like, be responsible." But because it's Paul Simon, you're like, everyone's crazy that this guy's not famous. Like, he's the best. Like, this is these songs are amazing. All of them. Like, everyone in this bar should be like lucky that they're in this moment in time to watch this guy and his band play these songs. So like, maybe you should change it out with like some really garbage. <laughs> I would and not then, want to see. No, then the, please. Then the please. movie's uh, thesis would work uh, better. Please do not remake One Trick Pony with somebody else. Please, please, world, let us just have this perfect contradictory document of a great songwriter imagining what it would be like if he wasn't successful. Just so beautiful, so beautiful. It is. And okay, let's talk about the the corporate studio stuff because it is my favorite stuff in the movie. It's, it's so good. Oh God, it's so good. It's do you now? Did you now? This is pre Spinal Tap, but did you get the the Spinal Tappy vibe from it? 
Well, what's great about these scenes is that the movie then starts to slip into, turn into a satire. Like, it starts, like, the movie, this is really three movies. You have your kind of docu, kind of mundane band on tour. Then you have your family drama. And now you're having this record industry satire. And it's really funny. Oh. And it's done, and it's like really sharp, and it's just like really do, doesn't like it doesn't hold back. <laughs> it's pain it, if you've it, if you've lived it. <laughs> it's also painful if you've ever been in off in an office trying to play your song for somebody. You work really hard to get into that that office. You have your time with them, and then they're answering the phone in the yeah. middle of your song, and then cutting you Constant. off like two two lines into yeah. a song. And yeah, I mean, the way Paul Simon's character, the way Joan Eleven handles it is way better than I handled it. I told that guy to yeah. fuck off <laughs> and I got kicked <laughs> and out again, of that. <laughs> and again, because it's Paul Simon, you're like, this song is so good. Like, man, they're listening to like him do an acoustic, amazing version of this song. And they're just like ordering lunch in their mind and they're, they're yeah, taking work calls. It's painfully funny. It's It's like Zach and I... Uh, have experienced that with pitching movies. Like, we're, like where we'll go into a place for a meeting, like a meeting that we really wanted. And then, like, I remember we had a meeting we really wanted and we were pitching this movie and the guy starts looking at his phone. He starts, like, texting people. Like, a person comes in. He has to leave and take a phone call. He comes back, makes us start over again. And then shit like that just kept happening. And you're just like, well, you're this is like, you don't understand. Like, we're creative people. Like, we're putting our heart and soul in this. Like, this is like nerve-wracking and like it and like anytime we pitch something whether it's a song or movie or whatever like you're hoping it's the thing that's gonna be the thing that everyone's gonna love and make your career or whatever and these people treat it like like they're just flipping channels on a television (laughs) it's (laughs) gut-wrenching so there so there are three main villains in this film one is rip torn who plays the record company president. Yeah. Right? And he's the so he's the Paul Simon's record company or uh Joan Eleven's record company and then he has an in-house producer that uh sort of a hit maker producer, young hip guy played by Lou Reed. <laughs> Perfectly played by Lou Reed. Oh my god. Perfectly. That was the second, like, oh my god, moment. So the B fifty twos moment, I guess. Then the then the seeing, like, getting to see Paul Simon's band performing like that. But then when Lou Reed shows up as the cheesiest, just record industry dirtbag, like (laughs) passive aggressive. Come on, man, strings would be great on this. I want to make a ballsy record too, man. It's (laughs) again. Cat, oh, if if like Warren Beatty would just love it. Ca- if casting is plot, that is perfect, perfect casting. Yeah. You couldn't, it couldn't be better, right? It's just... yeah. And you're a, you're a big Lou, you're a bigger Lou Reed fan than me. So uh, tell me about what you, what it was like for you seeing Lou Reed in this role. Uh, well, I th- what's interesting and uh, is that I'm a big fan of Lou Reed as an actor, and I didn't know he had multiple movies as an actor because i knew him from the film get crazy which was made a few years after this which also features alan garfield and daniel stern so i wonder if the same casting agent 
worked or they saw this movie and said, let's get those three together and make another movie that's like a zany comedy. So that's another movie where Lou Reed, like that one is Lou Reed playing a parody of himself, like an extreme version of Lou Reed. And in this, you're kind of playing like anti-Lou Reed. He's playing kind of anti-Lou Reed. Like, you know that Lou Reed's been on the Paul Simon end of this relationship. And I'm sure he had great fun doing these scenes where he gets to play the jerk. (laughs) And and like the one who thinks he knows better than Paul Simon on how to make a song sound good. Or just trying to make commercial, trying to commercialize this great, these great Paul Simon songs. It's so funny. It's so good. And he just, maybe because this is how he was in real life, he plays a jerk so well. (laughs) He's really jerky in the most believable way. Like how Paul Simon is wonderful and and seems so genuine and nice in this movie. Lou Reed seems so genuinely jerky in these scenes. Like he's amazing. And the way that he and Rip Torn manipulate Paul Simon into doing exactly what he doesn't want to do in the studio and you watch that's one of those beautiful things they just they demonstrate the way a producer and a record company can destroy a really good song so we see him doing this song Ace in the Hole and Ace in the Hole is this song that if you love the record it's one of the highlights on the record and so you know how the song's supposed to be and then you see step by step with adding too many strings and adding too many vocalists, the way that someone who really doesn't get the song and just wants to show billable hours, basically, like, hey, if we spend more money in the studio and we put more stuff on it, then it's going to be a better song. And I don't, I can't think, I'm I'm sure other movies have done that, but I feel like that was a pretty perfect demonstration of the ruining of a great song. And of a great band of being like, you don't need these guys. Let's bring in our people or our session people. Like, why do you have these guys around? Like, you don't have to be loyal to them. Let's get really good musicians in. Even though they are the great musicians, but just like that kind of like devil on the shoulder that they're trying to play with uh, Paul Simon's character in this. It seems very true. Yeah. So the other primo villain is Alan Garfield, who actually... He's credited in the credited in the film as Alan Gorwitz, which I guess yeah. is his real name. That's his real name. Yeah, that's the that's the credit he took for One from the Heart as well. Like in the early eighties, he reclaimed his original name. Good for him. Good for him. Mazel tov, Alan Gorwitz. <laughs> and he's the he plays the radio promoter who Paul Simon. Like, for some reason, Paul Simon is, like, takes shit from Rip Torn and Lou Reed, but... But not from this character. Not from Cal. <laughs> and and, then the, and one of the best scenes in the movie is when they're at this party, and he basically tells Ellen Garfield that he has a big butt in front of a bunch of people. That part is so good. Like, that, like that's as unruly and, and crazy as Paul Simon gets his movie. He gets a little tipsy at a party... And tells Ellen Garfield that he's got a huge ass. Yeah, I feel like that's one of those. <laughs> I feel like that's one of those great rebel moments on film. That should go in a compilation with Marlon Brando saying, "You know, what do you got?" To when asked in the Wild One, what he's rebelling against, or Jack Nicholson, you know, throwing the the chicken salad sandwich off the table <laughs> in five easy pieces. It's just this great 
moment of fuck you to authority. And he does it again in the Paul Simon way. He does it with a, a big word. He does it with his intelligence and understated uh, humor. And he and I really feel like he captures that feeling of being at a party after you've played and you so you're feeling good. You've got your rock and roll yah-yahs out. You know that you're the one who silenced everyone. You've had a couple of glasses of wine and then you just decide to fuck with this guy who is the one guy who could help you. It's so it's and it reminded me of the scene we talked about in Chameleon Street where he uh, the racist guy in the bar when he just used instead of like fighting or throwing things, he uses his intelligence and wit to put this person down. Yeah. yeah. Although it's Chameleon Street, <laughs> not Chameleon Street. Uh, <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so now let's not just let's not just focus on the guys here because there are uh, well, Joan Hackett plays Rip Torn's wife, and Paul Simon basically seduces her. Or she, they seduce each other, and this the sort of cat and mouse. I th- the pl- the the interplay between them, I I thought was really great. You could tell mm-hmm. she's sick of Rick Rip Torn's antics, and she's kind of happy to be having this sort of fling affair with Paul Simon. But at the same time, you definitely get the sense that she's slumming it. And <laughs> what do you think about what do you think about her in this role? I think she's really good. And I think that, the, again, the scenes don't feel phony. Like, they feel like, yeah, I can see these people hooking up like this. And, like, if she if she's, you know, like, it's just weird to, like, <laughs> it happens so easily. It seems like it happens so quick and easily. And in my mind, it's like, I guess in 1980, this skin just happens so fast. We have these people hook up so quickly, uh, you know. And and as and it has that great part when Rip Torn kind of is is keen like he's kind of aware of it going on, and that and that sort of like the way they play this kind of triangle is really funny, and and again like kind of believable in a funny way. Yeah. So there's another interesting actress in this film, and it's kind of a mystery about her. So, the actress who plays Alan Gorwitz slash Garfield's girlfriend in the film is an actress named Susan Forrestal. Are you familiar with Susan Forrestal? I am not. Most people aren't. But she was, this was her, well, she was in one film as an ice cream girl in 1973, but this was her first film in 1980. She was married to Lorne Michaels, the producer and creator of Saturday Night Live. And of course, Paul Simon was a big part of the first few mm-hmm. few seasons of SNL. He was sort of mm-hmm. I think he he was on the very first episode. And so he was he was definitely one of the big stars who helped put SNL on the map. And so it makes sense that he'd have Susan Forrestal uh, uh, Lauren Michaels, I think, just about someone who Lauren Michaels was going out with at the time, and would he would be married to for seven years, and she's in at least one other film. Well, she's in several films that we may get to. Uh, she's in the Two Jakes. She's in the Bonfire of the Vanities. 
and she's in primary colors. Uh, she's in, uh, and then she just kind of stopped doing stuff after 2001, <laughs> riding in cars with boys. But if you look her up, it's like the internet has been scrubbed. Like she, her IMDb is up there, but there's not a Wikipedia post for her. It's like she is in witness, an actress or. Uh, S or Lorne Michaels X protection something like if anyone knows what happened to Susan Forrestal I am now very very curious because she had this sort of hip I'm Lorne Michaels wife kind of career and then it just uh, then she just stopped and walked away so I'd like to know more about what happened with Susan Forrestal but uh, and it it is interesting that she's only in sort of very misunderstood movies (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, she's That's also really fascinating. <laughs> she, the Two Jakes, Postcards from the Edge, Bonfire of the Vanities, L.A. Story, Regarding Henry. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Huh. So I guess we're talking about cameos. There's a few other interesting cameos in this, like uh, Mayor Winningham showing up mm-hmm. as a waitress at a club where the band can't afford to pay their tab. And so Paul Simon being the, I don't know, the charismatic, seductive guy that he is, ends up going home with Mayor Winningham and <laughs> taking a bath with her. A very non-sensual bath. It just feels very much just like, we're just going to take a bath. Noth- nothing sexy here. We're, we're literally just going to be bathing. And yeah. sitting in the bathtub. <laughs> um, we've already talked about Daniel Stern showing up in this. We have a, a, a nice little, I don't know, the sort of connection with Spinal Tap in that Harry Shearer shows up as, mm-hmm. uh, as is it, I guess he's Paul Simon's booking, or Jonah Levin's booking agent, mm-hmm. who's... Sets him up for the big uh, '60s tribute gig, but won't doesn't want they don't want his band. They just want him to play that the one hit song, his mm-hmm. one one trick pony, his one trick, and uh, sort of thus begins the the disillusion of the band. Uh, were there any other cameos that you noticed? Those were the big ones. And we mentioned Tiny Tim, who, who was in earlier. Like, I love him, and seeing him on screen is always a rare treat. The internet says Merv Griffin's in it. I did not spot a Merv Griffin in this movie. Hmm. But it says he's an a cappella singer. What? Did you, did you spot Merv Griffin as an a cappella singer in this it's movie? It's got to be a different Merv Griffin. Maybe it is a different, not not the killer in Man with Two Brains, Merv Griffin. But... Right. <laughs> so, well, let's let's shift our attention a little bit to the to the actual music. We haven't really talked about that, and I'm gonna be like I said, I'm gonna be dropping a bunch of the music just into play under us talking because I feel like it's it's just it's just great. But are you a fan of the One Trick Pony album? Yeah, it's good. It's interesting because a lot of people consider it like this is his transitional period, like bridging, going into like, we're going to get to the really good stuff with Graceland and it's transitional here in the middle. But like, but that's silly. That's a silly way to think of a musician, I think, because it's like every new album will be a transition to something new if you're interesting. Like it's it's weird to dismiss it. It's weird to just dismiss it 
as like, oh, this is just like we're waiting for the really good, between the really good stuff. Because I really like this stuff. Like it's, it's like a, it's a like he said, it's like it's a really tight band, and it's a little bit of a funkier Paul Simon. Like it's got a little more funk to it, <laughs> which I like. It's like it is. It, it like really works for this movie, this music, because it is sort of the music, but a really good version of the music that you would believably see like five people play on stage, like in a bar. But like the best version of that kind of music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's funny because I feel sort of like this is the last Paul Simon record that sounds like it's really just a Paul Simon record. And then mm-hmm. after this, he does Hearts and Bones, which is a record that he recorded with Garfunkel and then took all of Garfunkel's vocals off of it and decided to make it a solo record. <laughs> what a jerk. It just, I love I that, didn't know that. I love that oh record, but it just hurts just knowing it's just sort of like... What... What did Garfunkel think of that? How did he ever sit in a room with that man again? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, well, I guess this is when we're going to get into the little bit of like the Paul Simon is a jerk, because then you have <laughs> Graceland, which, do you know the sto- the Paul Simon Los Lobos story? No. Uh, I'm really sorry to be the one to have to say this. So supposedly, and I believe it. Paul Simon jammed with the guys from Los Lobos and basically walked out of those sessions with Diamonds on the Soles of Their Shoes. A couple of the songs that basi- that ended up on the record were basically him taking what came out of their jam sessions and claiming them as his own song. And when they brought it up with him, he was like, yeah. Sue me if you want. Try and, you know, I'm Paul Simon. Basically, I have all the power here. You don't. You're a you're a, a, a young band. You should just be happy. Like, it was pretty, pretty shitty. And he also, you know, of course, there were uh, complaints that he was working with South African musicians at a time when there was a boycott against South Africa and that he was... There's a whole uh, claims of cultural appropriation. And I, I was I tended to defend him against those. But when you listen to how much there are song there are like there are songs on One Trick Pony that you can hear they are they're leaning into hooks that are in jam sessions from the band stuff from four years earlier. And you can see that Paul Simon is starting is like he's deciding I'm going to make my sound build it around the musicians that I play with which is I think a really great creative move it's just Mm -hmm. that then you should probably also credit those musicians as writers and not doing so it puts a bit of a taint on on the legacy and I do not like that because I love Paul Simon and I love his music and I guess that's, you know, just one of those things just, you know, that comes from being maybe that's part of the the competitiveness and the judging your own work by the way other people see it. That leads to him, I think, missing out on what's great about One Trick Pony, 
But I guess my mm-hmm. point in saying all of this is that to me, One Trick Pony is kind of like the last. This is a Paul Simon record, and after that, you have Paul Simon goes to South Africa, and Paul Simon goes to Brazil, and Paul Simon goes to Brian Eno, and Paul like, mm-hmm. and I love and all those it, records. I love them, but I don't love them as much as this. I feel like this, and it's sort of like really the personal. trajectory that a lot of artists took in the '80s. For some reason, that was just the thing. Like you have David Byrne leaving the Talking Heads and doing stuff with Brian Eno, and stuff with musicians from other countries, and like kind of this being in love with the sounds and music of other cultures and sting did that too it was just such a a thing it was just a cool thing to do i feel in the in the 80s is to abandon your roots and your band and just go into other uh, types of music like maybe people were just bored doing kind of straight rock and roll or folk or whatever and wanted to like expand because i don't i don't see these people's being like dirty thieves like with an evil scheme i think they are genuinely interested in these other cultures music but it's just yeah it's too bad not to give credit where credit is due for a lot of these people yeah and actually i feel like paul simon did elevate people like lady smith black mambazo oh yeah in a way that they would never have been so that's th- that complaint i've always defended him against but when yeah. i heard about what uh, the situation with los lobos and it just makes you think how many other people you know, when someone, I don't know, when someone claims credit for something that isn't their work, it makes you have to question, has this happened other times? <laughs> and again, it doesn't take anything like you. There's no other musicians there when he's playing soft parachutes. That's Paul Simon. Uh, and he his talent as a songwriter and as a guitar player and as a singer is unique and precious. And yeah. Uh, and at the same time, maybe that's one of the differences between Joan Eleven and Paul Simon, is that Paul Simon's a guy who's willing to play the game, who's willing to be as much of a jerk as the Lou Reed character in this film, <laughs> but Joan Eleven is not. Joan Eleven is the guy who's too good for this business. Joan Eleven's the guy yeah. who is going to probably bend over backwards to give credit to his musicians. Joan Eleven's the guy who's gonna who's gonna trash the session because they kicked his band out. Whereas Paul Simon's probably the guy who's like, hey, you know what? I'm gonna kick the bass player out of stuff and I'm gonna go get Tony Levin because Tony Levin's <laughs> awesome. And I don't really wanna have the whole band stuff because then people are gonna know that I'm taking some of the music from stuff. I don't wanna I don't want stuff to be so famous. I want them to just be known as my band. And it's something about that killer instinct is probably the reason that Paul Simon is one of the most successful musicians yeah. in the world, and a guy like yeah. Joan Eleven isn't. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a sad thing that happens. Like, you know, just being nice and polite sometimes leaves you behind, unfortunately. But maybe you're more fondly remembered. <laughs> Who knows? Like, it happens all the time. Like, like, Zach and I, again, I hate to keep bringing this up, but like, We've thought of ideas and jam sessions with other directors, and then they'd go off and just make the thing and never credit that we were the kernel of the idea or that we had anything to do with it. And it's sad, but that guy's making movies and we're not. So it's just sort of like a sad thing, you know. No one gives.
gives their dreams away too lightly They hold them tightly Warm against cold One more year of traveling round this circuit Okay, we're just going to jump in here. I thought it would be useful to get the input of a professional session musician who knows something about navigating this fine line between being a player on someone's song and being a writer. Jordan Summers is a member of the band All Day Sucker, which is a multi-songwriter band out of Los Angeles. He was also part of the Echo in the Canyon project with Jacob Dylan and a veteran of many, 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 many sessions over the years. He's also a big Paul Simon fan. He was on an episode of Radio 8 Ball that we recorded in October. And while I had him on the show, I figured, hey, why not get his input on these issues? So here that is. Time passes. One of the things that I was looking forward to asking you about, I'm kind of, I want to use you as a, as a resource because on the other podcast I host, The World is Wrong, where we celebrate films that the world is wrong about, we just recorded our One Trick Pony episode the, mm-hmm. about Paul Simon's film and record, mostly about the Who film. Who are you telling? Yeah. And I, I, love, I love that movie, and most people haven't even seen it. And then the ones, and a lot of reviews about it are pretty negative. So we were talking about it, and one of the things that came up was Paul Simon's eh, somewhat checkered career particularly later in life, but even early, as uh, with sort of claims of plagiarism or of uh, taking credit from uh, for writing songs that he performed and sort of came out of jam sessions, particularly with Los Lobos on Graceland. And, right, in Graceland. I guess uh, I know all about that yeah. stuff. So, and, and we're talking about One Trick Pony and the band Stuff. Are you familiar with Stuff? The band stuff? Yeah. No. So I, I wasn't really aware of it either until uh, until I was researching it for the episode. But in the 70s, between basically between Still Crazy After All These Years in 75 and One Trick Pony in 80, in between those years, Steve Gadd, who played on uh, Still Crazy the After drummer, All These yeah. Years, he had a band... With Richard T. and Eric Gale, who are the other, are the keyboard player and the guitar player who played on the One Trick Pony album. Yes, with and, a, and other Richard T. is yeah. badass. Yeah, so they had this sort of this. I have a patch in my Nord that, that is I use the Richard every T. time we play. That is called T T Nord T, T Roads. Sounds just like his uh, his vibe. And it sounds, wait, and it sounds a little something. You said it's Patreon, right? So here we go. Tell me if this does not sound like the classic Richard T. thing. Right? Come on. Oh, yeah. 
come on. So, so anyway, so the thing about stuff, and I think that I think of stuff as being kind of like all day sucker. They were the band around town that all these guys who were session guys on other people's records played in, and that was their like where they worked things out, and they they get booked to play at jazz fests. They'd have they get booked for for cool gigs, but you know they were mostly all making their money playing for other people, and uh, with the with the one trick pony album they. Uh, they, I don't Wasn't remember. Tony Levin in that too. Tony Levin Tony replaced Levin? The, the bass player from Stuff okay. on the One Trick Pony record. So anyway, the the point is that there's this band, and I've I'm a huge fan of the One Trick Pony album. And when I went to research Stuff, I'm hearing them play grooves in '76 that sound like there are definitely things that feel like oh here's Paul. You know, I, I think it's a really great thing to do is you work with the band and you let the band inform the sound of your songs. I think that's a really great way to work as a songwriter. But I'm having this sort of like, I'm trying to figure out how to talk about it because it's kind of an ethical conundrum. And I, as a songwriter, approach it one way. I know what it's like to play with musicians and have that jamming become a so song. And none of my... That, what, go are on. you saying that stuff that when you listen to what they were playing, you feel like he kind of did what he did with the South African thing and, and Los Lobos with them? Um, well, I think they're all, I think of them as all different examples. Uh, they're all, they're, they're different cases, but from, but creatively it feels like at that point in Paul Simon's career, he's like, Hey, you know what? I just, I'm not going to come to, I'm not going to come in with the song and teach you my song. Let's get together and I'll listen to what you do and I'll write to it, which is right. Is a, this is what that, and, and he's kind of done that ever since right right so i guess because you are so you're a songwriter and you're also a session guy and so i'm just curious how you how you feel about this thing about if you're playing with a songwriter you're and we'll leave names out of it but you play with lots and lots of cool so cool folks if you're playing with the songwriter you you show up for you know this very famous person session and they say oh, let's just jam and then they jam and out of that jam comes a song how much do you feel like you you are a writer or you should have ownership of okay. that and I how have much very not? strong feelings I knew you would this. and that's why I'm asking you and I think it's all relative of course but you got a minute <laughs> yeah um let me just say this for Paul Simon. It's like top five for me. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I think he's, for someone so highly rated, I still think he's underrated. Yep. And um, and I think his, uh, the way he went about those records, and I've heard that, that mixtape piece. I have that mixtape that he was given of the South African stuff. And a lot of those things are pretty much almost the same. Like gumboots and where he wrote a melody over Okay, um, and they're basic progressions, one, four, five, whatever. But the vibe is there. Um, I write songs like with Morty. Generally, I'll write music and I'll send it to him, and I'll sing dummy lyrics, which would also be a good show to hear what I sing to him, um, which is generally more insulting and terrible things about him or what he's done. He mentioned that. Yeah, always do that all the time. Do that with Jordan Zivon too. Um, and he'll, you know, pull those things out. Sometimes he keeps them and he'll write 
lyrics to it and or he'll change melody stuff here and there and sometimes he'll send me stuff and he'll sing something or I'm a machine and then I will write to that so there are times where I've been in bands or I've been in sessions where you get in a room and the person who wrote the song it's very basic um sometimes they have a chord structure and then you go and you do a bridge let's say and you take it to a and and you'll do some kind of instrumental thing that was did not exist prior to that moment um and i think a lot of it is kind of like screenwriting where you know you get a screenwriting credit when you write the like what is it 70 80% i don't remember what the writers guild has anymore but a lot of it is that and if you're a top liner like someone like paul simon um you're going to get absorbed that guy has credits he wrote it over top of water he's going to put his name on the goddamn thing if you're in a band situation and you have principal writers and they're doing the main writing and the one of the other guys in the band come up with a part that's his job if that part rises above the rest of the song and becomes a signature piece in the song even if you can't even if you can play the song on acoustic guitar um let's say and that it's a keyboard riff let's say uh and you can play the entire song without that riff existing but yet that riff is still kind of what it is it's like my girl down you know my girl that's exactly what i was thinking of yeah that session guy played that died in obscurity can you play that song without that absolutely does that make the song i don't know if it makes it but it's it's pretty important So that's when the business gets into it. And it really isn't about the art or credit, it's about money. Um, that guy did his job. He did it really well. And and it became this third thing. In my opinion, in those situations, that person A should be credited either with writing and if it's a monetary thing, maybe you get the writing credit, so you get that and and it gives you more money later or a combination of both or you pay them. Not either. I think you have to do that. Conversely, there are many times where you'll have someone who'll take one of my songs or and change a couple chords, add this thing or do a two or three little things that make it better but does not really change the DNA of the song. That does not uh garner writing credit. And I think when people don't write songs from soup to nuts, they feel that those those uh collaborations are more than they really are and because it's all relative and you in the room you know there's if you're in the room when someone else writes something do you get credit for that um a lot of times mostly no i really think if 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 that song comes into the room and it's 80% 90% there and it's really just coloring the song or changing the the vibe of it but the song is still um still intact no it doesn't that's an arrangement thing um, yeah, don like... costa doing doing all those all those tracks and opera stuff you know he's doing old old songs old musical things that would be dead in the dumpster because of time marching on and he brings life into it and frank's not just sings over it. he doesn't get writing credit he gets arrangement credit but since that's not done so much anymore in band situations and the politics are different um i think a lot of times session players will do amazing stuff and create 
a bed that that song lays on that they should not get credit for it. And other times, if you're going to just jam out on a song and someone's coming out with um, a chord progression and a melody line, and that person's going to take that melody line and build on it, those guys deserve credit. And it's a chicken and egg thing, um, I think, to most people. But if you are really a songwriter and you've done it, and you've written as I mean, I've written a lot of songs over the years in different bands and played with other songwriters. And I did a song with Jacob that he was doing, and he had written a song, and we did a bridge, and the bridge had did not exist. Song I don't even know if he ever recorded it, but it's a good song. Talk about Jacob and, Dylan here, just yeah. So we just but but yeah, Jacob Dylan. We just he was we were demoing it. We didn't find the song, but we did. But went to this instrumental thing. And it was cool. And he kind of, um, it was more instrumental. I think he was going to write something over. It was going to be more of like a ooh-ah kind of thing. Um, and I'm thinking, shit, you know, that'd be cool if I got writing credit for that. But really, it wouldn't have mattered. The song wouldn't have changed if you cut it out. didn't make it better. Yeah. Now, Jacob has done that. He's given credit to the guys in the band. And the Wallfires have credit that they spread it around because they're a band. And it depends on how the band is, um, how it's constructed, and who the leaders are, and how uh, how how it works. So, you know, I don't know what happened to that song. I don't know if it's going to come out on a, a record. I don't expect to have my name on it. I'd be excited to have my part on it and say, "Hey, I wrote that." You know, I can give you great examples from the Imposters too. Big fights we had where I think, "Hey, I did this." And they're saying, well, no, I can play that on acoustic guitar without that. I'm like, but it's not the same thing. Yeah. And uh, um, and there's a couple examples where I think I fall into the session category where what I played, even though I didn't write the bulk of the song, um, warranted songwriting and vice versa, where I've written songs and people have done stuff where I've played signature things that doesn't warrant writing of that song. And I think educating yourself on what goes into the song and where that song starts and where it's where it ends up um, really is is that gray area where these things happen. And with Paul Simon, those guys had those grooves, and he sang his top line over that. Um, I was having this discussion in the taxi heading downtown. That song. You know the the that song. You know that, right? Yeah. Well, that's one, four, five. It's basic chord progression. There's no like real, but that groove was there. He wrote that top line to it and the lyrics, which took that basic groove into a song. He made it into a song. Do I think he should probably give them credit? Yeah, because he took a piece of music and then added to that music that existed. Right. Um, however, he's Paul Simon. And sometimes the rules change when you're like that. And it, and well, do I think that's fair? Did he pay them well? Yes, he did pay them well. By all, uh, by all accounts, they were thrilled to have him. They tour around them. You know, they, they, he was close with those guys. Um, I think probably there could have been some more thoughtful way of him uh, yeah. uh, compensating them artistically aside from, you know, three hot meals and, 
and some and nice tour buses and money. Um, yeah. Well, you know, you, you can argue that oh, it toured the world and everyone heard of what like, Blacksmith on Basel and all these guys and and Los Lobos and all that stuff. But those guys also know I'm going into a session with Paul Simon, and if I went into a session with Paul McCartney or Paul Simon, and I played with them and they took the credit. I would probably be psyched anyway. <laughs> right. Well, I think it depends. Like, you can kind of get that if there's a difference between being Ladysmith Black Mombazo before Graceland or being Los Lobos having just come out with your third major label record and thinking, thing, you know, basically it's a matter of where you think you are in, in, in terms of your power. But I, I wanted to, this is where I wanted to shift one thing, because one of the things I want to talk about on that podcast, and we will get to my question. I, I, that's, I really, I, I want to respect your time. But uh, can you think of an example, so that it's not just like, oh, Paul Simon is the only guy who does this. You must know of some other very famous songwriter or artist who you have some story about, about, that that's the way they work as well. That this is, I guess that there's a precedent, and you sort of have said this already, but I'm trying to think of examples of other people, like, I feel well, like- Well, I know that, um, well, like Maroon 5, who I, I, I know personally, because they were, they came up and I played on their first demos and they used to come to see us play and I'm friends with them and they're great. And I know they write, Adam would write songs on his own, but they would also get in a room and just jam out and they find that thing that like, oh, that's great, right? And Adam would basically go and take that away and write his melody or what he was gonna sing over it. And, you know, find that, that bit, right? Like, and you know, maybe they're doing all that, they're jamming work and he's a great guitar player and a musician. Is he playing with, I don't know, like what he's, how I have not been in that room with them. I just have heard them talk about it. We will snatch onto something and say, oh, there's a cool there's a, this thing, and I'm going to grab that bit and grab that bit, and he goes away and comes back and says, I'm going to sing this over here, the song. Adam and, and Room 5 participate. They all get, they get songwriting credit. I don't know what how it's uh, morphed as it is like in the last few records, but in the beginning, that's, they all got credit for that. Um, and I know that there wasn't necessarily, you know, you know, the songwriter sitting alone and with the quill and banging out the music and the lyric by himself um, and bringing it to the band and going, okay, here's my new song. Let's say I like Elvis Costello. Well, you know, that guy walks in and goes, here it is, right? This is right. This is what we're doing. Um, there are other, a lot of people like to do that. They'll go in the room. I think you too um, will get in a room and, you know, mm -hmm. somebody comes in with, I've got this lick. You know, we did that in my band too. Like, someone comes in, I got this thing, it's cool. Oh, that's cool. We play and we jam out on something. And, and, um, and the internal politics of the band really is like, hey, did we use that part? Was that critical? Was it not? Um, you know, you can do a chord progression all day long. It, that does not make it a song. Well, I have a question to... for you. I'm going to bring it to you. Like, so the song Santa Ana has that guitar riff that I feel like is is crucial to that. Did that start out as a guitar riff, or did the no. so does no. the does Jay is Jay a writer on that song? No, that song existed uh, and had, was was demoed extensively, and that song like it's a. <laughs> Was 
was the thing I had. And so I, good. I love that song. <laughs> okay, so that that song was done. I wrote the the it was I think I was singing I don't mind nothing's gonna come between us. It was originally the lyrics that I sent to Morty and then I say someone's gonna steal your penis or whatever I would <laughs> sing to him or you know um you think that you're a musical genius and all these rude things I like to put on the demos. Um and I demoed it, I sang it, I gave it to him. We changed a bunch of stuff. He sang different stuff. We co-wrote the song. And in the studio, Morty, I believe, sang that lick to Jay. Because um, huh. we were trying to come up with a, you know, like it's that summer so breezy thing. And, and I think he, um, like, I know Jay did the, some of it too, the, but yeah, I think he's Morty saying it to him, and that happens a lot. Like, but then there's another lick that we did on One Long Day on the last All This Sucker record. Yeah, and Jay busts out this crazy ass lick. This um, this really cool lick. He played a bunch of stuff. He played this lick, and Morty went, whoa, 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 whoa. "What is that? That's it." Whoa, 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 and and that was it. Morty was like, "No, no, no, no. That's what we're using. That's the thing now." That is the thing. Also, did not get writing credit on that, but because the song was written, demoed, recorded, pretty much done. That was the last thing that went on it. But then we retooled it around it. It's still the same song, but that's like him doing his job and doing it well. You know, like yeah, um, yeah. I um, this is that this is that fine line that we're going to be trying to walk when we talk about it because it's funny because people, I, there are people who I've written with, who I've played with who feel like they were writers on a song where I know they're not. And then there are people I've played with who just, they did something really simple on the song, and then therefore they see that they're credited as a writer, and they're like, what, I didn't write that, I just came up, well, you change, that chord change makes the song. Like, I wouldn't have... <laughs> no, but it doesn't always. <laughs> Yeah. 
Now, did you notice that there is a a pretty heavy hitter in uh, on the crew for this in the production uh, the production department, the production management, the unit manager on this film? Did you recognize? Did you notice that? A no. Kitman Ho. Oliver Stone's production partner through most of his big films of the 80s and 90s, one of his first gigs was as the unit manager on One Trick Pony. So, good for you, A-Kitman Ho. would Would you even have been aware of that name if I hadn't said it to you? No, but now I am, and so now when I do my, you know, Oliver Stone marathon, I'll be very excited every time that name comes up. Yeah, he was the producer on Born on the Fourth of July, JFK, and uh, many other. The, uh, the good stuff. Yeah. The Doors, Heaven and Earth, Talk Radio, Wall Street, Platoon. Yeah. Yeah, the good stuff. Man, is there a line between Oliver Stone's career not being as good and this guy no longer working on his movies? It might be. It might be. <laughs> He also was a producer on Ali and Hotel Rwanda after his work with hmm. Oliver Stone. So Interesting. Paul Interesting. Simon I'm gave impre- him a break. I'm impressed that you recognize that name. You have a good memory. Now, are you... We, we haven't really talked at all about the director. Maybe let's finish out there talking about Robert M. Young. Are you... Were you familiar with his work before digging into this No. Movie? This is the only movie his I've ever seen. Really? Yeah, I never heard of him before this. I never, and a lot of his movies I've never even heard of. Yeah, the only one that I was familiar with was Dominic and Eugene, starring Tom Hulch and Ray Liotta. Uh, that was there was when I was a young actor, we did scenes from that in acting class, and it's a great film. <laughs> it uh, it features. One of my favorite character actors who I always thought was going to get more successful than he did, which was Todd Graff. Mm-hmm. Do you know, are you familiar with Todd Graff? The name is familiar. What, who is, what was he in? You'd rec- he was in The Five Corners, and he was in The Abyss, and he was in Dominic and Eugene. He was in uh, John Sayles' City of Hope. Always playing... Hmm. Uh, character actor i guess maybe uh his role in five corners was bigger than in uh in some of these other things but yeah i always thought he was going to go on to to be something special he's one of my favorites so Hmm. 
Anyway, um, yeah, why don't we just uh, play an ad for one of our paper house <laughs> compatriots and then move into the, uh, the closing of the show? Do you call yourself a music fan? Are you the one making the playlist for all the parties? Then you've got to listen to the Pinch Music Podcast, where we interview musicians, engineers, producers, and music lovers of all types. We even put together playlists for any and all occasions. So if you want to have the Beatles vs. Stones debate, pick up some engineering tips, or just discover a new artist, you've got to check out the Pinch Music Podcast, all a part of the Paperhouse Network. So, Brian, why you, why, now, I, I pretty much live for the releases of the Director's Wall episodes. So, why have you chosen this month to, well, actually, the month that we're recording this, the month of October, to, to just, to shut things down? Is it is it a protest against (laughs) Francis Ford Coppola? You, you did one from the heart, (laughs) and now you're just leaving me hanging. Well, AJ and I follow strict Shocktober rules, and that is you only watch horror films in the month of October only, nothing else. And we've done this for years. I've done this for nearly 10 years now, and I I can't break it. And 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 like if if it had lined up that Bram Stoker's Dracula was the next movie, then we would have recorded and done episode, but it's not. It's Hammett, which is not a horror movie. So we can't watch it till the first week of November. <laughs> Wait, how did you Them's the rules, man. <laughs> how did you square doing uh watching One Trick Pony? Uh I watched all of these movies the last day of September. Shut up. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I crammed them all in, took extensive notes, and now I'm just strictly a horror guy until November 1st. That's just how it has to work. Actually, I believe October. that because you also told me that you are up to speed on the films the the next two we're doing. I won't I won't spoil them by telling you what they telling the audience what they are yet. Yeah. Usually you're kind of a last minute guy, but you're you did. You put in the work ahead. Huh. Yeah, and now I'm just like re- spending these weeks researching and reading about the movies and doing that. But, you know, so maybe this will be how I normally do it now. Just one the beginning of the month, just do everything and then spend time digging in more, thinking about it. I don't know. But that's that's Shocktober rules. Like AJ and I both agreed that we had to take a break. But then starting in November, and by the time this episode airs, this will be mid-December, we'll be well into like we'll just finish Rumblefish, I bet. Uh, so Uh-oh. we're getting into don't some say, really don't do good this stuff. Again. Don't. <laughs> we already had to correct it once. Don't. Pre- you already you told us not to take you seriously when you make predictions. So people like that's just... my prediction. Hanukkah Rumblefish. It's happening. I uh, hope so. I love that film. So... <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that we're we're get, I'm excited to get back into it. But so in the meantime, you can listen to well. Well, this is airing when when we're doing it again. It doesn't matter. So ignore everything I just said. Anyways, <laughs> you have a show of your own called the Radio 8 Ball Show. It's all podcast now. Uh, you recently did an episode where you talked about the Aaron Sorkin movie, The Trial of the Chicago 7, which I haven't seen yet because I can't watch a non-horror movie till November. But you had a lot of interesting stories about Abby Hoffman, stuff that I didn't know about you. And it's really fascinating and great. 
and uh, people should check it out. Yeah. You know, Trial of the Chicago 7 is pretty terrifying. So it might be, <laughs> you could, it might qualify as a horror film in a certain way. But uh, yeah, so Radio 8 Ball, first of all, the, the show, our format is that we ha- ask questions and then we answer those questions by picking songs at random and then interpreting them like musical tarot cards. And this, the week that you're talking about, the week we were recording this, our guest was an artist named Muhammad Seven. So if you look for the episode with Muhammad Seven, you'll find it. And synchronistically, this was also the week of the release of the trial of the Chicago Seven. And as you said, I have a, a sort of a deep connection with Abby Hoffman. I interviewed him for my school paper in 1984. Wow. And my father was his therapist and uh, professor at Brandeis when he was sort of... when. Abby was coming into his own as a, you know, becoming aware of the political movements of the era of the time. And so I just, I have this real, uh, there's a strong affinity for Abby Hoffman. I talk about it on the episode, but I did want to point out, see, you haven't seen the film and this is not a spoiler, Brian, but I know that you are a big fan of odd uses of food in film as you were in life, you yeah. Were, yeah, you were rather obsessed with the way Alden Ehrenreich holds a hamburger <laughs> in Rules Don't Apply. <laughs> and so there's going to be a moment in the trial of the Chicago Seven that I think you're really going to appreciate. So there's a there's a scene. The, it's a it's a movie that's a, it's a trial movie. And the first scene where all of the defendants. So the, the, the trial started and then. It's sort of going to hell in a handbasket, and they know that they are up against, they're really up against it because of the judge and and, uh, the way uh, the judge is treating the trial. And so the first scene where they go back into a conference room to to talk, where they kind of, they argue about their strategy, uh, they're served sandwiches. And on the way out, Abby Hoffman grabs his sandwich, and there's a... Uh, sort of one of the dynamics in the film is that Tom Hayden, played by Eddie Redmayne, he and the Abby Hoffman, played by Sasha Baron Cohen, are sort of the ideological poles of the film. So they are arguing a bunch. And it's a very subtle thing that Sasha Baron Cohen does, but I think it's because he knows that Abby Hoffman was... Before he was an activist, he was also uh, a great basketball player, although a foot shorter than Sasha Baron Cohen. So he was one of those scrappy, (laughs) scrappy basketball players. And there's a way that Sasha Baron Cohen grabs his sandwich and then sort of fake offers it to Eddie Redmayne and pulls it away like it's a basketball. It's a very subtle moment. But if you watch the film, watch that scene and just be like, I'm excited. oh, Sasha Baron Cohen, you did your research. You did at no other point in this is basketball discussed, but you just threw that little bit in. And if you know it, you're like, oh, that's cool. And of course, <laughs> since you're a fan of food based acting, I just thought you might. I am. You might. Oh, my God. You have something to look forward now to. Now I'm there. excited. <laughs> And that's Excellent. that's not something I didn't talk about the sandwich part in uh, on Radio Eight Ball. So that's just for so, for the world is wrong, <laughs> listeners. You want to hear about my father's connection to 
to Abby Hoffman. Uh, you got to check it out on the episode with Muhammad Seven. Great. So uh, yeah, if you if you like what we're doing, please uh, send us emails at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. And if you don't like what we're doing, send us emails to contact <laughs> at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. If you have suggestions, questions, thoughts, inspirations, we'd love to hear them. You can find yeah. us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And, of course, uh, you can find us and our podcasts wherever you find podcasts. We're happy to be a part of uh, Paper House Network. And did I leave anything out there? Oh, what's what are we doing next week, Brian? Oh, boy. We're continuing with the Hanukkah festivities, even though I think Hanukkah will be done by the time this next episode airs. But we're watching and doing the brilliant film Jack and Jill. He's not being sarcastic. It is a great film. And yeah, uh, uh, as much I, I feel like no film we it's the film that the world is the most wrong about that we have covered so far. Definitely. So it's going to be an ep- a game changer, perhaps. Yeah. So I guess well. So get yourself up to speed on that. Uh, Jack and Jill is easy to find on many streaming platforms. So find it and get ready for our conversation next week. And until then, we just would like for you to to remember that uh, wherever you are, the world is is wrong, and it's probably wrong about you. Some people say music, that's the ace in the hole. Just your ordinary rhythm and blues, your basic rock and roll. And you can sit on top of the beat, you can lean on the side of the beat, you can hang from the bottom of the beat, but you gotta admit that the music is sweet. Hey, Junior, I'm your ace in the hole. I'm calling you, hey, Junior. Hey, I'm your ace in the hole. I'm talking to you, hey, hey Junior. Junior. Hey, I'm, I'm your ex in the hole. Hey. That's great. I really like that. Why don't you come on in? We'll listen to the playback. Joan, I have some ideas I'd like to talk to you about. Electric piano that Clarence is playing on the bridge. There's a beautiful thing there. I think we could have some strings in there. You know, a nice, 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 heavy kind of string section there. Textually, it'd be beautiful. I think it's worth the time and the money to go in and book a session. We think Clarence strings on the... Ah, come on and tear your heart out. See, it's not that we don't want to have our heart torn out. It's just that we're trying to make a ballsy record here. You know, and we don't want it to be uh, lush. I want to make a ballsy record, too. River, River Deep Mountain High now. That's a ballsy record, wouldn't you say? Strings in there. So we open it up texturally. Then maybe we could add saxophone on the end, on the solo, on the roll-on, roll-on part. Oh, no, you can't sax. take out Lee Andrews' solo. Listen, for crying out loud, he's all over the record. No, Lee Andrew is the lead guitarist in this sure band. Sure he is. And he's... Sure he is. This doesn't take away from Lee Andrew. He, I'm sure he'd love it, too. Just broaden things a little bit. You know, don't you want to try for some AM oh, airplay on this? You tell Lee Andrew that What's you're going to, to tell him? replace you his soul the with the sax.
And hey, listen, you know, what do you think I am? Just a knob turner here? I made I made a couple of records myself, you know. I know what I'm doing. I'm not here just to play with you. I know what I'm doing. Why don't you just listen? set out to do. I think so. Absolutely. I want to hear it again, but I must say on first listening, it's very powerful. Happy, Joan? Yeah, I like a lot of it, but see, now he said that anything that we didn't like, we didn't have to keep. And I well, think some of the... This is the most commercial thing you've cut in a long time. It's great. Really, you should, you should be very pleased. Is that the way it's going to be on the final record? Yeah, the saxo was hey, really... Hey, we don't have to take it. We just tell Walter we don't like it. You tell him. It's your band, your record, so you tell him. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola, 
Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.